0: Right now I'm in the chaotic period of trying to finish up my oral board case lists and I'm trying to like frantically remember what in the heck I was doing way back when I was a chief resident. And thank God there is the OBG projects to help remind me of some of these
1: things. Yeah, the OBG project has been great for studying for oral boards because I'm in the exact same place as you are. What's even better is that I have their subscription service, OBG First, which allows me to create my own bookshelf so that I can go back to all the articles that I've been reading about GYN that I've forgotten.
0: If you're a chief resident, you can get that OBG First absolutely free. Head on over to our website, CreeExerVerticoffee.com, check out the sidebar, and you can sign up. And if you're a resident, you actually can get access to the core, which is a resident curriculum. I actually have a new feature on here called the Resident Core Life Hacks Library, which I'm going to have to go check out. You can also check out the sidebar on our website to get signed up. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye, and this is
1: Creags Over over Coffee. Coffee.
0: Today we're going to talk about an exciting topic that somehow we skipped over and just talked about all of the things beyond this, but we're going to back it up and talk about second and third trimester bleeding today. Faye, we've talked about accretas and all sorts of other crazy stuff, but I think we got to get back to basics. So what are we going to talk about today?
1: Yeah, so today we're going to review the reasons for second and third trimester bleeding in pregnancy. We're going to learn the history and exam and also, you know, lab findings and imaging to diagnose second and third trimester bleeding to figure out what's going on. And then finally, we'll of course uh, manage bleeding in that second and third trimester. And I just want to say in this case, by second and third trimester of pregnancy, I actually mean beyond 20 weeks of pregnancy. So I kind of want to leave behind that first and early second trimester where you would think about things like ectopic and stuff like that. So Nick, let's talk a little bit about causes of late pregnancy bleeding.
0: Yeah. So I think we're going to start off with some kind of scary ones and maybe some that sound kind of familiar too. Um, I think probably the first thing many folks think of is placenta previa, or that's the first thing that you should be thinking of with bleeding in late second and third trimester. A previa, just as a reminder, is when the placenta partially or totally covers the internal cervical os, um, defined as the edge of the placenta within 10 millimeters of that internal cervical os. The incidence of placenta previa is about 4 per 1,000 births, but varies worldwide, and there's increased risk of placenta previa that's associated with prior history of placenta previa, previous cesarean section, and a patient who has multiple gestation, twins, triplets, etc., Placenta previous can often be identified and should be identified on ultrasound, and many times we actually see them on that initial anatomy scan at like 18 to 20 weeks. If you see them at that point very early on, the prognosis is fairly good. 90% of them will resolve prior to delivery, meaning that you know, not that the placenta moves, but that the implantation site is actually higher up on the uterus, and so as the placenta grows, the placenta kind of gets dragged back um, farther away from the cervical os. Painless vaginal bleeding can occur in up to 90% of cases where there's persistent placenta previa. Um, and 10 to 20% of folks with placenta previa will present with uterine contractions, pain, and bleeding that may ultimately lead to a necessary preterm birth. Um, again, catastrophic bleeding, need for transfusion, need for delivery, and also the potential risk of stillbirth from that bleeding, um, from bleeding at the fetal interface, um, are all Consequences of placenta previa. Faye, why don't I have you take it on from here um, with placenta accreta, which is an old familiar friend of ours now?
1: Yes. So, um- we briefly wanted to mention placenta accreta spectrum because that can certainly lead to late pregnancy bleeding. Um, but uh, we did do a whole series of this with Dr. Shanker and Dr. Einerson, So definitely go back to those notes from March that we have on our two episodes for placenta accreta spectrum. Very briefly though, to kind of talk about it, remember that PAS is when there's abnormal trophoblastic invasion of part of or all of the placenta into that myometrium of the urine wall. This can lead to painful or painless bleeding, um, depending on the cause of that bleeding. And the risk factors, or things that um, put you at higher risk for having PAS, are things like previous C-section, placenta previa, and very strangely, unexplained elevation in MSAFP. Though I will have to say that you know this is not a good predictor and shouldn't um, you know tell you and say, oh hey, this person has a placenta um, accreta spectrum. The reason we care are all of the things that Dr. Shanker and Dr. Einerson talked to us about back in March. PAS can lead to things like catastrophic bleeding, need for transfusion, and preterm delivery. And of course, it may also require a cesarean hysterectomy. And of course, these patients usually will need to be delivered at a tertiary care center um, or a placenta accreta center for that multidisciplinary team management.
0: Another scary one is vasaprevia. Vasaprevia is kind of as you might imply from the name that vessels are running over the internal os of the cervix akin to placenta previa. These are fetal vessels that are running over that internal os within membranes. Um, This is a really, really rare condition, and the quoted incidence is somewhere around 1 in 2,500 pregnancies. Vasa previa often will present with painless bleeding, similarly to placenta previa. And there are two general types that we think of, One is in the form of a velamentous cord insertion and fetal ventals that run freely within the amniotic membranes and overlie the cervix or within two centimeters of it. Um, This is often seen in pregnancies with a low-lying placenta or in resolved placenta previous. And so again, paying attention to that cord insertion is really, really important to know exactly is that velamentous or not. The other type that we think of is when a succenturate or multi-lobed placenta and uh, when there's a succenturate or multi-lobed placenta that exists and fetal vessels that connect those lobes course over or within two centimeters of the cervical os. So you basically get, again, one lobe anteriorly, one lobe posteriorly, for instance, then you have some bridging vessel that goes over the cervix. IVF is one other risk factor that exists for vasoprevia, Um, and so is a reason, again, to pay attention to placenta if you're performing ultrasound. We certainly care about this because those vessels themselves, those lead directly to the circulatory supply of the fetus. And so really the risk here is for fetal hemorrhage and exsanguination and ultimately stillbirth. Vasaprevias are, again, really, really scary when you see them on ultrasound. Um, So definitely, definitely get your maternal fetal medicine colleagues involved if you're seeing that.
1: The next thing we think about is placental abruption, which um, I think most of us will know is that separation of the placenta from the inner wall of the uterus before birth. Usually this will lead to painful bleeding, and we'll usually see things like many, many contractions on the monitor if you're putting this patient on the monitor, usually with those low amplitude, very frequent contractions. Placental abruption happens in 2 to 10 out of 1,000 births in the United States, and things that put people at higher risk for that is things like a history of an abruption, cocaine use, tobacco use, um, hypertension, whether that's chronic versus hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, as well as things like uterine abnormalities, so like having a fibroid or maybe like a bicornuate uterus. And... Again, the reason we care is because it can lead to catastrophic bleeding, need for transfusion and delivery, and of course can lead to stillbirth and also um, potentially high risk of morbidity and mortality for uh, the pregnant patient.
0: final scary one that we'll talk about is uterine rupture. Um, and We've mentioned this on the podcast before during our trial of labor after cesarean episode, but just as a quick refresher, Again, it's a significant uterine disruption, usually occurring along a previous uterine scar where that basically just breaks open. This typically is very, very painful with bleeding where the pain is much, much more significant oftentimes than the bleeding because the bleeding truthfully is often confined internally. Risk factors for this include a previous history of uterine rupture, any sort of previous uterine scar, especially if it's a fundal scar or a vertical scar, for instance, from a prior cesarean delivery or prior myomectomy, Um, and then induction of labor um, or labor itself can also be risk factors for uterine rupture just because of the contractions of the uterus, particularly if it coincides with a malaria anomaly. We... Care about this really again? Not just from the whole pain and bleeding thing, but these are important to recognize instantaneously because there's a very high incidence of morbidity and mortality for both the mother and the baby when these are not recognized. Faye, how about some less dangerous causes of bleeding?
1: Yeah, so now that we've talked about all those scary things, which of course should be at our forefront of our minds when we think about people who come in with bleeding, there's also less dangerous reasons for bleeding in late pregnancy. And admittedly, these are probably more common. The first, of course, of which is just labor or preterm labor. We can certainly get that bloody show um, from labor from the cervix, which, you know, most of the time is not dangerous if we have someone coming in in term labor. Of course, we do have to think about preterm labor and those implications there if that patient is preterm. The next cause is something like cervicitis, just like that can cause bleeding even before pregnancy or in early pregnancy that can still cause bleeding due to cervical friability in late pregnancy. These are things that can be caused by infection, so things even like vaginitis, so like BV, candida, trichomonas, but also things like chlamydia and gonorrhea. So remember to think about those things even when people are coming in later in pregnancy with bleeding. And then some other things that we can think about that you can look for on exam would be things like a cervical polyp or a vaginal laceration. All right, Nick, so now that we've talked about all the causes of bleeding in late pregnancy, let's talk a little bit about how we figure things out. So talk to me about you know what we need to think about in terms of history and examination.
0: Yeah, so classically, I always start out with that history and exam. Um, with your history, you're going to first assess how much bleeding is going on and what has the patient been seeing. Is the patient soaking through their clothes? Are they passing big clots? Are they passing any tissue? Just because someone has light bleeding doesn't mean that they don't have something life-threatening going on for them or for their fetus. So even if you only get like a sense of just like a tiny bit of spotting... Still, you need to do your evaluation and make sure that nothing significant or serious is going on, or if there's something that's unrecognized. Um, You can also talk to the patient about whether pain is present um, and how long the bleeding has been happening. And I think also just as a time saver step is to ask the patient about whether they know any particular risks for bleeding for them. So have they had bleeding in a prior pregnancy or with this pregnancy? Has anybody told them if they've had a placenta previa or a placenta accreta? That immediately sets your mindset in terms of how do I triage this and what do I need to take action for right now? Now that we've clarified history, we're going to head for doing our physical exam. And we're primarily going to focus after, of course, getting vital signs and such on the abdominal and pelvic exam. So take a look under the sheet. How fast is the patient bleeding? Do you already see a puddle even though they've only been there for five minutes? On your abdominal exam, do you notice any tenderness to palpation anywhere? Any tenderness particularly over the uterus that might suggest infection or abruption or uterine rupture? how pregnant does the patient appear to be, particularly if you don't have any records or any history about the patient? Patients with uterine rupture or abruption tend to be very tender to palpation, um, and patients who are experiencing something like a placenta previa or vasa previa are less likely to have that tenderness. And then finally with the exam, you're going to move to a pelvic or speculum exam. If tissue is freely coming through the vagina, that's of course, be sent to pathology to know exactly what you're looking at. But you're going to be looking for vaginal lacerations, potential neoplasms, discharge, evidence of cervicitis. Um, do you see polyps or fibroids or just a very large and prominent ectropion that's there? You can get some swabs at this point to look for cervicitis and vaginitis, like doing a wet mount as well as gonorrhea chlamydia testing. Um, but I think the most important takeaway on exam here is don't do a digital cervical exam without confirming placentation. Do not put your finger into a placenta previa uh, because that will just provoke even worse bleeding. And don't put your finger into a vasa previa because then you're going to cause the outcome that we don't want to have happen, which is exsanguination of the fetus. Um, so please, please, please confirm placentation before doing a digital exam. All right, so now that we've had that moment, Faye, to like lock that into folks' brains, let's move on with our assessment um, and talk about the other things we
1: need to be doing. Sure. And a lot of times, you know, when someone's coming into the emergency room, these are probably automatically done. So the first is just, if this is not a patient that's been in your system or is late to care, or we don't have records for a pregnancy test, just to confirm that they're actually pregnant. You should always be thinking about things like type in screens and like a complete blood count and a coagulation profile, especially in someone who is bleeding, because we want to think about, you know, if this is a patient that we need to transfuse, we want to have their type in screen or type and cross on file. And also think about, of course, rogam for someone who is Rh negative. And then if this is a patient that is past the limits of viability, then we need to consider putting that fetus on the monitor and see how that fetus is doing. Not only is this to figure out the status of the fetus, sometimes it's The only way to tell if someone is abrupting or rupturing their uterus, right, other than them having abdominal pain, is we see that non-reassuring fetal heart tracing or in the setting of an abruption, you see that telltale sign of these low amplitude frequent contractions. And again, watching that contraction pattern can really discern if someone is contracting while they're bleeding. The next step is the ultrasound, which of course we have to put in there since we're MFM fellows. Usually a transabdominal ultrasound is enough if you want to confirm that there's heart tones, confirm the position of the fetus, and confirm the location of the placenta. However, if you think that there is a placenta previa, accreta, or previa, you really should do a transvaginal ultrasound to be absolutely sure, so that you can see exactly how far that placenta or those vessels are from the cervical os. The color and pulse wave dopplers are going to be your friend and should be used in diagnosing these things. And then, of course, remember things like placental abruption is a clinical diagnosis. So a lot of times people will say, oh, well, I didn't see any signs of abruption on the ultrasound. And the thing is, you may not see a blood clot or an area that appears to be detached um, on that placenta. It's a clinical diagnosis. If you see bleeding, the patient's having a lot of pain, they're contracting on the monitor. That should you in into thinking about placental abruption. And then finally, most of the time, you may not have to do that ultrasound if that patient has already been diagnosed with a previa, accreta, or previa at their mid-trimester ultrasound and has had good follow-up very recently. Um, but always something to keep in the back of your mind um, if that patient has not yet had that mid-trimester scan. So now that we've talked about our reasons for bleeding, we've talked about our history exam and um, lab tests and imaging, now let's move on to management, Nick. What do we do for someone who's coming in and having bleeding in late pregnancy?
0: Yeah, so depending on the amount of bleeding, obviously you're going to start thinking about your ABC stuff, right? So your vital signs, getting two large-bore IVs, um, and starting resuscitation, and depending again on that initial and suspected amounts, you may be obviously thinking crystalloid fluid, um, maybe potentially even considering blood products straight away. If there's less bleeding happening and you think that you have more time, then obviously you have more time to assess and think. So certainly getting a blood type and an RH status, thinking about Rogam at that point if it's indicated. Um, And kind of the management really otherwise ultimately depends on the reason for bleeding. So we're gonna talk more about the particular management for some of these more dangerous things because the management plan really, really does vary depending on what exactly is happening. I'm going to start with placenta previa with placenta previa again you're oftentimes thinking that if someone has come to the hospital for bleeding and it was enough to bring them to the hospital that often will trigger an admission for some monitoring to see is the bleeding going to continue or not pending the stability of mom and fetus you may ultimately end up needing to do an emergent delivery via cesarean section at the time of seeing this bleeding versus you know, expectantly managing if the bleeding is not super significant. Depending on your center, you may have a threshold for prolonged admission. And one of the most common ones I think I've heard is sort of this so-called three strikes rule where if someone presents for bleeding three separate times over the course of their pregnancy from outpatient causing them to become inpatient then the third time they stay inpatient the remainder of the pregnancy due to that ongoing bleeding risk if folks with previa are stable they can usually be delivered somewhere between 36 and 37 in six weeks and obviously this needs to be by c-section because the the placenta is blocking the cervical os. If the placenta is low-lying, your institution may determine exactly whether a patient can have a vaginal delivery. Most places will offer vaginal delivery if the placental margin is over 2 centimeters away from the cervical os. Some institutions may have a discussion, shared decision-making, or refer to a higher level of care if a patient desires vaginal delivery and the placenta is between 1 to 2 centimeters from the os. All right, so Faye, let's talk about the other dangerous ones now.
1: The next thing that I wanted to talk about, of course, is placenta accreta spectrum. If there is enough bleeding to bring that patient to the hospital, this will usually also trigger an admission for monitoring. And, you know, thinking about how much bleeding there is, this could also lead to an emergent delivery and hysterectomy, as well as transfusion, pending stability. Just like in placenta previa, if that patient is preterm, we need to think about things like steroids and magnesium for CP prophylaxis and for fetal lung maturity. However, if these patients are stable, we can recommend delivery somewhere between 34 to 35 weeks and six days. And again, usually this should be done at a tertiary care center with a multidisciplinary team for the best outcomes. Last but not least, I wanted to talk about vasoprevia. Usually there's a lower threshold for bleeding and contraction in vasoprevia because that bleeding could be coming from a fetal vessel. And while, of course, we care about bleeding from the maternal side, remember in an adult human, they can have between five, six liters of blood, but a fetus has much, much less. A term fetus and placental unit can have up to about 500 cc's of blood. And in the fetus itself, they may just have 250 to 300 cc's. And I usually describe this to patients to think about it in terms of a Coke can. A Coke can has about 355 milliliters of fluid in there. And to think about how much blood their baby has. And so even a very small bleed can lead to hemorrhage for that fetus and lead to catastrophic outcomes for the fetus. So for this reason, many places will actually hospitalize patients with previa and actually keep them in the hospital and after discussion with them somewhere you know between 28 weeks to 34 weeks of putting them in the hospital, putting them on the monitor three times a day to make sure that they're not having contractions and not going into labor because even early labor can cause catastrophic outcomes with bleeding from those fetal vessels. And then for these patients, there's a recommendation for delivery somewhere between 34 to 37 weeks, pending the stability of the mom and the baby. So I think that brings us to the end of our topic about second and third trimester bleeding. So why don't we go ahead and summarize?
0: All right. So we started off reviewing many of the reasons for second and third trimester bleeding in pregnancy. Um we talked about primarily a lot of dangerous things, so placenta previa, when the placenta partially or totally covers the internal cervical os, placenta accreta spectrum, again take a listen back to our series on placenta accreta spectrum from March with Dr. Schenker and Dr. Einerson, Vasa previa when fetal vessels run within the membranes over the internal os of the cervix, placental abruption, which is a separation of the placenta from the inner wall of the uterus prior to birth, and uterine rupture, which is a significant uterine disruption, usually along a previous uterine scar. Less dangerous causes of bleeding can include things like just bloody show with normal labor, cervicitis, a cervical polyp, or vaginal laceration.
1: In terms of history and examination, we want to ask the patients about things like how much bleeding they're having, if there's pain with bleeding, how long has the bleeding been there, and also questions about their history that they know, so if they know that they have a placenta previa or a vasoprevia. In terms of the examination, other than our full physical examination, we particularly want to focus on the abdominal and pelvic exam. Lift that sheet. How fast is that patient bleeding? Are we running back to the operating room? Are we squeezing in unmatched blood? Also on abdominal exam, is there tenderness to palpation? It's much more likely for a patient to be tender with something like a um, uterine rupture or with an abruption, but much less likely for someone with a placenta or vasoprevia. Start with the speculum exam. Take a look to see if the patient is passing tissue. Look for things like a laceration, neoplasms, discharge, evidence of cervicitis, polyps, fibroids, ectropion, and of course, send testing for things like cervicitis and vaginitis. And finally, do not do that digital cervical exam without confirmation of where the placenta is. In terms of labs and imaging, send that pregnancy test if we're not sure if the patient's actually pregnant, if they don't have any prenatal records. Type and screen CBC coagulation profile should be automatic when they come in through that door. And then, of course, doing things like putting the baby on the monitor, not just to assess fetal well-being, but also to tell you a little bit more about what could be going on. Are they contracting? Is this a placental abruption? And finally, the transabdominal and transvaginal ultrasound are going to be your best friend in helping you identify things like placenta previa, placenta accreta, or previa.
0: The management of these conditions depends really on what they are, but initially start with your ABCs, know what your vital signs are, get two large-bore IVs in place, particularly if you're worried about ongoing bleeding that's life-threatening, and start resuscitation with crystalloid fluid versus blood products. You can get blood type, RH status, some of the labs that Faye mentioned earlier, administer Rogam if it's indicated, and then start thinking through your causes. And if you do have a cause, start thinking about what I need to do to stabilize things. With placenta previa, typically trigger an admission for monitoring with bleeding. Give steroids for fetal lung maturity. Consider magnesium if patients under 32 weeks. And pending stability, you may ultimately require cesarean delivery if, again, either mom or baby is not stable. You can expectantly manage placenta previa. Again, certain locations may have a threshold for a prolonged admission. If they're otherwise stable, you can usually deliver between 36 and 37 and 6.
1: In terms of placenta accreta spectrum, again, bleeding may also trigger an admission for monitoring, and pending stability can also lead to things like emergent delivery or a hysterectomy. Again, if the patient is preterm, considering things like steroids and magnesium for better fetal outcomes. And if stable, we can recommend delivery somewhere between 34 to 35 weeks and six days, usually at a tertiary care center.
0: And finally, with vasoprevia, Again, there's so much less fetal blood, right? While an adult has five to six liters of blood, a fetus may only have a Coke can, 350 cc's of blood, or even less than that. So for this reason, many places will hospitalize patients with vasoprevious somewhere between 28 and 34 weeks, with delivery recommended between 34 and 37 weeks, pending the stability of mom and baby. All right, I think that does it. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Criogs Over Coffee.
1: If you enjoy this episode, go ahead and go on to your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and give us a five-star rating and review.
0: You can find us online on Twitter at CreeUggsOverCoffee1, on Instagram and Facebook at over Coffee. or if you love the show, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Send us some love. We'll send you some swag.
1: We have show notes for this show and every other show on our website, www.CreeUggsOverCoffee.com.
0: And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction to this episode or any of our prior episodes, or just want to say hello, email us, kreogsovercoffee at gmail.com.